Chapter 8, The Athanasian Creed, The One and the Many Creeds in the early church were of two varieties, baptismal and conciliar. The baptismal creeds were affirmations of faith at baptism, creeds of entrance into the faith. The Apostles' Creed is the basic baptismal creed. Although other baptismal creeds preceded and followed the Apostles' Creed, in particular St. Epiphanes, around 310-403, two creeds, the Apostles' Creed has remained as the basic creedal statement for converts. Conciliar creeds were tests of orthodoxy and therefore usually had anathemas attached to them. The Nicene Creed, in its developed Constantinopolitan form, became the baptismal creed of the Eastern Church and is therefore both a conciliar and baptismal creed. As a result, the Athanasian Creed is not strictly a creed in either of these senses, since it is neither the work of a council nor a baptismal creed. Clark has called it, not properly a creed at all, but a hymn on the creed, like the Te Deum. However, while not the work of a council, it is the product of the church's struggle against heresy, and it is a test of orthodoxy, so that it is closely related to the conciliar confessions and is properly a creed. This creed bears the name of St. Athanasius, or Athanasius the Great, although it is definitely not his work. Since Athanasius was at Nicaea, the great champion of the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, this creed affirming the doctrine bears his name, although it is more directly a result of St. Augustine's influence than that of Athanasius. Athanasius 299-373, while not a reliable guide on the doctrine of the Atonement, was a faithful champion of the Trinitarian faith, and as early as Epiphanius is termed the father of Orthodoxy. His opposition to Arianism made him the target of political persecution, and he was exiled five times. During one exile of six years, he lived in the Egyptian desert with monks. Assassins were hired on one occasion to dispose of Athanasius. The statist named George of Cappadocia an Arian bishop to replace Athanasius. George took possession of his office with imperial troops and began to persecute savagely both the Orthodox believers and to pillage the pagan temples. The pagans seized George, paraded him through the city, tied on a camel, and then burned both George and the camel. According to Schaff, Arian legend made a saint of George and first made Athanasius into an enemy wizard and then into a dragon whom St. George overcame. Every kind of accusation was made against Athanasius. He was accused of murdering Arsenius, who was very much alive and in hiding. He was accused of raping a virgin who turned out to be a prostitute who had never before seen Athanasius and who failed in her task by identifying another man as Athanasius. His life for years was a troubled and hunted one. The creed rightfully honored him as the first great conciliar champion of Trinitarianism. At first, the creed was simply called the Catholic Faith, and it gained the Athanasian title during the Arian controversy in Gaul, when the Athanasian origins of the controversy were invoked. The Western tendencies toward subordinationism were invoked by the Arians to counteract orthodoxy. St. Augustine taught strongly against subordinationism and for the unity and equality of the Trinity, and this view, although first stressed in the East, came to have true roots in the West as a result of Augustine's work. This Latin faith the Athanasian Creed summarized. Augustine taught the procession of the Holy Ghost from the Father and the Son and the perfect essential unity of the hypostasis. 
Schaff saw the Athanasian Creed as the expression in classic form of the Augustinian doctrine of the Trinity, beyond which the orthodox development of the doctrine in the Roman and evangelical churches to this day, 1867, had made no advance. This creed embodies passages from Augustine's work on the Trinity, A.D. 415, and from the Commentorian of Vicentius of Larinum, A.D. 434. The creed probably dates from around 450 or a little later. It is from Gaul, in the Augustinian school of thought. The influence of the creed in Western Christianity has been very great. Luther regarded it as the weightiest and greatest work of the Church since the time of the Apostles. The Church of England dropped its compulsory use in 1867, and the Protestant Episcopal Church of America in the Convention of 1785 in Philadelphia dropped both the Nicene and Athanasian creeds and struck out from the Apostles' Creed the clause, He descended into hell. Pressures from the Archbishops of Canterbury and York brought in 1786 the restoration in America of all but the Athanasian Creed. The damnatory clauses were the reason for hostility. The Eastern Church has never formally accepted this creed, although there has been limited use of it. The Athanasian Creed, as it appears in the Lutheran liturgy and in other churches, declares, Whoever will be saved, before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic, i.e. universal, Christian, faith. Which faith, except every one do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounded the persons, nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreate, the Son uncreate, and the Holy Ghost uncreate. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. As there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensibles, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible, so likewise the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. And yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost is Lord. And yet they are not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say, There be three gods, or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father, and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but preceding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghost. And in this Trinity none is before or after other. None is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal, so that in all things, as is aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must think thus of the Trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believes faithfully the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world, perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood who, although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ, one not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking the manhood into God, one altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended into heaven, he sitteth on the right hand of the Father, God Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, at whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies, and shall give an account of their own works. And they that have done good shall go into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the Catholic faith, which except a man believe faithfully and firmly, he cannot be saved. A reading of this creed makes obvious the reason for its unpopularity. It is long, and people are impatient with long creeds. Worship must be brief. The other creeds have a beauty of phrase and a musical quality, whereas the Athanasius is precisely and logically theological. The fact remains, however, that this creed is extremely important and represents a major victory of Western Christianity. For Western Christianity, biblical theology rests firmly on a Trinitarian foundation, without subordination. In theology, the attributes or properties of God are divided into incommunicable and communicable. The incommunicable attributes which manifest God as God in his transcendence are first, aseity or independence, whereby God is absolute, sufficient unto himself. Second, the immutability of God means that since God is absolute and therefore dependent on nothing besides himself, he does not and cannot change. Third, God is infinite. With respect to the infinity of God, Van Til has pointed out, in relation to the question of time, we speak of the eternity of God, while with respect to space, we speak of the omnipresence of God. By the term eternity, we mean that there is no beginning or end or succession of moments in God's being or consciousness. Psalms 92, 2 Peter 3, 8. This conception of eternity is of particular importance in apologetics because it invokes the whole question of the meaning of the temporal universe. It involves a definitive philosophy of history. By the term omnipresence, we mean that God is neither included in space nor absent from it. God is above all space and yet present in every part of it. 1 Kings 8.27, Acts 17.27 The fourth incommunicable attribute of God is unity. As Van Til has pointed out, we distinguish between the unity of singularity, singularitatis, and the unity of simplicity, simplicitatis. The unity of singularity has reference to numerical oneness. There is and can only be one God. The unity of simplicity signifies that God is in no sense composed of parts or aspects that existed prior to himself. Jeremiah 10.10, 10, 1 John 1.5. The communicable attributes of God are those which stress his imminence and are first, spirituality, God is a spirit, John 4.24, second, invisibility, third, omniscience.
The doctrine of the Trinity declares that the three persons are co-substantial. Not one is derived in its substance from either or both of the others, yet there are three distinct persons in this unity. The diversity and the identity are equally underived. Augustine, in writing on the Trinity, emphasized the unity, equality, and equal ultimacy of the three persons of the Godhead. Wherefore, let us hold this above all, that whatsoever is said of that most eminent and divine loftiness in respect to itself is said in respect to substance, but that which is said in relation to anything is not said in respect to substance, but relatively, and that the effect of the same substance in Father and Son and Holy Spirit is, that whatsoever is said of each in respect to themselves is to be taken of them, not in the plural in some, but in the singular, for as the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, which no one doubts to be said in respect to substance, yet we do not say that the very supreme Trinity itself is three gods, but one God. So the Father is great, the Son great, and the Holy Spirit great, yet not three greats, but one great. For it is not written of the Father alone, as they perversely suppose, but of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, thou art great. Thou art God alone, Psalm 86.10. And the Father is good, the Son good, and the Holy Spirit good, yet not three goods, but one good, of whom it is said, None is good, save one, that is God. For the Lord Jesus, lest he should be understood as man only by him who said, Good Master, as addressing a man, does not therefore say, There is none good, save the Father alone, but none good, save one, that is God. Luke 18, 18, 19. For the Father by himself is declared by the name of Father, but by the name of God, both himself and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because the Trinity is one God. But position and condition and places and times are not said to be in God properly, but metaphorically and through similitudes. So the Father is omnipotent, the Son omnipotent, and the Holy Spirit is omnipotent, yet not three omnipotents, but one omnipotent. For of him are all things, and through him are all things, and in him are all things. To him be glory. Romans 11.36 Whatever, therefore, is spoken of God in respect to himself is both spoken singly of each person, that is, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and together of the Trinity itself, not plurally, but in the singular. For inasmuch as to God it is not one thing to be, and another thing to be great, but to him it is the same thing to be, as it is to be great. Therefore, as we do not say three essences, so we do not say three greatness, but one essence and one greatness. I say essence, which in Greek is called ousia, and which we call more usually substance. The influence of this passage from On the Trinity, A.D. 400, on the Athanasian Creed is quite apparent. Augustine made it clear that the only subordination in the Trinity is economic and relative, not essential. The three persons of the Trinity are equally ultimate in their particularity as well as their unity. Their individuality is real, and their unity is real. They are truly three persons, one God. The name God is equally applicable to all three persons. It is an Arminian heresy to reserve the name of God to the Father alone. This common usage makes Arminianism closer to Arianism and Nestorianism than to Orthodox Christianity. 
The Athanasian Creed declares the attributes of God belong to all three persons without differences of any kind. It is only the epithets ingenerate, generated by the Father and proceeding that are connected respectively and exclusively with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God then means the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and no two persons of the Trinity are greater together than a third, nor are all three persons together anything greater than each severally. As Augustine wrote, We have said elsewhere that those things are predicated specially in the Trinity as belonging severally to each person, which are predicated relatively the one to the other as Father and Son, and the gift of both, the Holy Spirit, for the Father is not the Trinity, nor the Son the Trinity, nor the gift the Trinity, but whenever each is singly spoken of in respect to themselves, then they are not spoken of as three in the plural number, but one, the Trinity itself, as the Father God, the Son God, and the Holy Spirit God, the Father God good, the Son good, the Holy Spirit good, and the Father omnipotent, the Son omnipotent, and the Holy Spirit omnipotent, yet neither three gods, nor three goods, nor three omnipotents, but one God, good, omnipotent, the Trinity itself, and whatsoever else is said of them, not relatively in respect to each other, but individually in respect to themselves. For they are thus spoken of according to essence, since in them to be is the same as to be great, as to be good, as to be wise, and whatever else is said of each person individually therein, or of the Trinity itself in respect to themselves, and that therefore they are called three persons or three substances, not in order that any difference of essence may be understood, but in that we may be able to answer by some one word, should any one ask what three or what three things, and that there is so great inequality in that trinity, that not only the Father is not greater than the Son, as regards divinity, but neither are the Father and Son together greater than the Holy Spirit, nor is each individual person, whichever it be of the three, less than the trinity itself. The importance of this point with respect to the trinity appears as we analyze the problem of the one and the many. As Van Til has pointed out, there is for the Christian a distinction between the eternal one and many and the temporal one and many. For non-Christian philosophies, no such distinction exists, since for them all being is one being. For Christian philosophy, as Van Til has shown, orthodox thinking holds that the eternal one and many form a self-complete unity. God is absolute personality, and therefore absolute individuality. He exists necessarily. He has no non-being over against himself in comparison with which he defines himself. He is internally self-defined. For Orthodox Christian thought, there is an equal ultimacy of the one and the many in the Trinity. That is, the oneness of things is as ultimate as the individuality and the particularity of things. The oneness of God is not more ultimate than his three persons, nor his three persons more ultimate than his oneness. To cite Van Til again, whose work has placed him squarely in the great tradition of Athanasius, Augustine, and Calvin, Unity in God is no more fundamental than diversity, and diversity in God is no more fundamental than unity. 
The persons of the Trinity are mutually exhaustive of one another. The Son and the Spirit are ontologically on par with the Father. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity avoids the pitfalls of an abstract universal or one and abstract particulars, in that neither the universals or oneness of things is an abstraction from concrete particulars, nor are the particulars merely abstractions from a concrete universal. It is only in the Christian doctrine of the triune God, as we are bound to believe, that we really have a concrete universal. In God's being, there are no particulars not related to the universal, and there is nothing universal that is not fully expressed in the particulars. The temporal one and many are entirely God's creation. Everything that is, is God's creation, and non-being is the field of God's possible operation. Since non-being is nothing in itself for God, God had to create, if he wished to create at all, out of nothing. The temporal one and many are thus created by God, and he is the law of their creation. As a result, the temporal order must see a similar relationship between the one and the many as exists in the eternal one and many. Non-Christian philosophy veers from an emphasis on the one to the many, from, to state it politically, totalitarianism to anarchism, from an insistence that unity is truth to an insistence that individuality is the true order. It is thus in constant conflict. The state or man, the husband and wife as individuals, or marriage as an institution, the group or the persons, which represents true order. All non-Christian thought holds to the ultimacy of either the one or the many, and as a result veers from totalitarianism to anarchism. It can only maintain a balance between the two dialectically, briefly and in tension, which collapses. Orthodox Christianity, by its doctrine of the Trinity, avoids this basic problem of philosophy. The state is not more important than the citizen, nor the citizen than the state. Both are equally basic to God's order, and equally established in his law. Marriage, as an institution, is under God and according to his word, but the man and wife are equally under God and protected by his law, so that marriage is not sacrificed to the individual desires, nor the individuals to an institution. Both are equally established by and live under God's law order. A philosophy which emphasizes the one or the universals will make individuals abstract and unreal against the concrete universal. The citizens are sacrificed to the state, and man and wife are nothing as against the institution of marriage. A philosophy which holds that the many are real and universals are abstractions will destroy the state to free the concrete particular, anarchist man, and deny that marriage as an institution has any valid claim over the desires and whims of men and women. Orthodox Christianity has always held to the full-orb Trinitarian faith, and the Athanasian Creed is the classic expression of this doctrine. Every heresy in the Church has been subordinationist in some form or another. If, for example, by God, the Almighty Creator, the Father, is meant exclusively, and the Son and the Spirit are seen as some kind of junior gods at best, the consequence has been the priority of natural order to revealed order. Natural law, or positive law, as a later development, comes to a position of ascendancy over revealed law. The basic order is seen as the natural order, and the revealed order comes to be a kind of addition, a complement, to an already operative order. In such heresies, the state becomes man's basic order, and the church is peripheral and subordinate to the state, the basic order. 
The true vicar of God in such a situation is the state and its head, and the state comes to be man's saving order, the kingdom of God on earth. Such a theology becomes a form of the old imperial theology, and politics again becomes the source of ethics. In Orthodox Christianity, ethics is derived from religion, from theology, but in paganism and in subordinationist heresies, ethics is derived from politics because man is governed by a political theology, i.e. the state is the functioning voice and agency of its God. The Athanasian Creed meticulously, thoroughly, precisely, and in Augustinian language closed the door to subordinationism and rendered it a heresy. It was never an acceptable faith, but now it was declared, Whosoever will be saved, before all things, it is necessary that he hold to the Catholic faith, i.e., this anti-subordinationist doctrine of the Trinity, for this is the Catholic faith, which except a man believe faithfully and firmly, he cannot be saved. These damnatory phrases have been bitterly attacked by critics of the Athanasian Creed. It has been inferred that everyone below the level of St. Augustine is barred from heaven and consigned to hell for failing to understand the full orb doctrine of the Trinity. For so long, complicated and philosophical a creed to become a test of faith, it is held, is to limit Christianity to a handful of orthodox intellectuals. The charge is totally groundless. The creed defines the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, the humble believer is required to believe it, not to understand it in all its implications. The believer's obligation is to accept the faith, to receive it, not to become a learned expounder of it. The critical point is this. If the Trinitarianism affirmed by the Athanasian Creed be not affirmed, then another Savior than Christ is affirmed, and no man can be saved who holds to another Savior. Subordinationism was the instrument whereby the imperial doctrine of salvation was re-entering the church. Modern subordinationists hold to a political salvation, and in the subordinate area of religion, all good Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, cannibals, and all others are held to be saved in terms of their own premises. The inevitable outcome of all subordinationism is another savior. This both Athanasius and St. Augustine realized. For them, Christianity itself was at stake in the controversies of their day. Every approach to Arian Unitarianism was an approach also to religious universalism. Christianity would cease to be Christianity and would become another one of many syncretistic faiths of the day. Subordinationism makes God the Father, the Creator, who has not fully or truly revealed himself in Jesus Christ, the ultimate one and the universal. There is then no particular which is also ultimate, only final unity. Moreover, since this creating one is better operative in the created order than in revelation, then all religions better reveal him than does the Bible and Christ. All religions are thus given dignity and Christ is reduced to one among many natural strivings towards the final unity. To free man from the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity is to free man from God. By this doctrine, God's sovereignty is maintained, and his eternal decree declared. Time and history are determined by God. Without this doctrine, God again becomes the silent God of Arianism. An unconscious, inchoate being who is silent because he cannot reveal himself. Such a God is only ultimate as the original being out of which all beings evolve, not as the creator and determiner of all things. Out of such a God, good and evil have equally emerged and are thus equally ultimate. According to Augustine, in De Libero Arbitrio, Van Til points out, 
It was a great boon to him when the Manichees had told him in his youth that he could live as he pleased since he was not ultimately responsible for his deeds. There was an ultimate force of evil, something demonic, more comprehensive and more compelling than the will of man that made men sin. But now as a Christian, Augustine knows that he himself, that man, not some super-individual force, is responsible for sin. The forms of this liberation vary, and Manichaeanism is but one of many forms. In every form, however, wherever the doctrine of the Trinity, as declared by Scripture and summarized in the Athanasian Creed, is denied, there a death of God philosophy is in process of formation. It is therefore clearly necessary that whosoever will be saved hold to this orthodox Trinitarian faith, for this is the Catholic faith which except a man believe faithfully and firmly, he cannot be saved.